Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, we continue our conversation with former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This week, she'll get into why at age 83, she's running for another two years in Congress. And we'll talk 2024 electoral politics, too. All that's from our recent onstage conversation with the San Francisco Congresswoman. If you want to watch the entire hour, you can tune in tomorrow night to KQED TV. That's Channel 9. That's Friday night. We'll be airing the unedited conversation at 8 p.m. But first, Scott, a big Newsweek sort of culminating, or maybe this afternoon, with an announcement from uh, LaFonza Butler, the woman named by Gavin Newsom to uh, fill Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. She says she will not run, uh, putting out a statement saying that she has spent the last several weeks since the appointment pursuing her clarity, thinking about what kind of life she wants to have, what kind of service she wants to offer, and that she's decided not to run, quote, knowing you can win a campaign doesn't always mean you should run a campaign. Um, And we have actually the senator in her own voice talking on Fox 11 in Los Angeles to Alex Michelson. Um, and he, you know, asked her about this question. And she talked a lot about the work she's done getting particularly women of color elected uh, to office, um, but had this to say. The divisive nature and uh, of the harassment that is happening both mm-hmm. online and in real life. Um, my mother is 70 years old. She didn't sign up for this. My daughter is nine. She didn't sign up for, for, for this. And so I'm thinking about my family, my family's safety. I've already gotten my first piece of hate mail and a stranger has shown up at my door. That is certainly a legitimate reason not to run, uh, you know, and especially since she has never run before. And so suddenly she's thrown into this cauldron in D.C. where it's I mean, right now it's it's just red hot for all kinds of reasons. And so it's you know, it's not surprising if you've come up through the political world and you've run for office, you've kind of gotten used to being yelled at by your constituents, I could see where this would be, you know, kind of a shock. On the other hand, I think there's, there is a question, was this a real decision? You know, was did she really think about running or, as some thought, when she was appointed, did she really uh, was she really never intending to run, which is what some people were hoping Newsom would do. But I don't know. It, I kind of believe her that, that this has been an iterative process because it does sound like she didn't have a lot of sort of warning before the the governor called and I and I do think you have to consider I mean she's not just a woman she's a black woman she's a black female lesbian uh, she has a young daughter as she mentioned uh, pri- you know outside of that interview I have heard from people who know her that the yeah, reaction, the hate was very swift. And I do think that that is a real thing. And, you know, if you look at this statement, 
it's interesting. I mean, pursuing my clarity, I think, you know, a question of, I mean, this doesn't mean she'll never run for anything. No, I think, in fact, she's gotten a great launch. You know, she, she was, uh, it was a brilliant appointment in a lot of ways. It got Newsom out from under a, a rough spot, promising to appoint a black woman, but uh, not wanting to appoint somebody who was going to run. I think she was very well received in Washington. And, you know, so, and, and I don't know what her name ID exactly is in California, but it's a lot higher than it was a few weeks ago. Well, you know who's happy today? Barbara Lee, I'm sure, is and quite I'm happy. And I'm sure Adam Schiff and, and Nancy Porter. Pelosi, who yeah. we'll be hearing from in a little bit. But so, yeah, I think, it, you know, it. It is rare, as she said, to have that kind of power and to give it up, you know, right. uh, because it looked to many who saw her that she was running. She was looking yeah. and sounding like a candidate. And she still has a year to do that job and to build that name ID. And like, I, we are not done hearing from LaFonta Butler. A woman is 44 years old. She was a rising star in the party before all of this. I think this just gives her... A little time. And, and I'm sure there might have been, yeah, some family conversations. It's not, as we've talked about here in relation to Diane Feinstein's death, your entire family makes a sacrifice when you go into Absolutely. public Absolutely, especially when you're on the West Coast going back and forth. Yeah. All right. Well, other news we do need to get to before we go to this former speaker. Gavin Newsom goes to Israel. He uh, follows President Biden. He is arriving there on Friday, um, just spending a few hours, it sounds like, meeting with, with folks. That they haven't really said who. Um Victims is he of the running violence. for president? <laughs> he certainly seems to be running for shadow president. I mean, this is quite something. I mean, he addressed the U.N. last month talking about climate change. He's going to be debating Governor Ron DeSantis, who is running for president at the end of November. Uh, so he certainly is looking and sounding like a candidate. Um and I'm sure he's keeping the powder dry if, in fact, that were to open up an opportunity. But it's also, you know, going to Israel right now, uh, it, it is a bit of a, you know, minefield, so to speak, to be uh, you know, this very much inflamed passions on all sides. And, you know, also, if when you parachute into a situation like that, it can be very disruptive mm. to everything else that's going on. So he's got to be careful. Probably not more disruptive than the president of the United States. But, you know. Yeah, but who has a good reason to be yeah. going? I'm not sure he has a good reason to be going. <laughs> we'll see. Well, And we will be watching. He heads then to China. China on Monday, where he'll be uh, doing a bunch of meetings with government and business leaders. And so we'll be watching uh, his latest foray onto the world stage. It's yeah, never, not the never only never governor, we should say, too. Yeah. Kathy Hochul from New York uh, was there a few days ago and might still be there. Yeah, and a lot, I think a lot of at-home politics for them to deal with, wrestle with over that situation. Uh, finally, Scott, and this could change, honestly, in the next few hours, but the House Speaker chaos continues. We saw today, first Jim Jordan saying, you know what, I'll throw my sort of support behind a caretaker position for the current uh, speaker and or the Patrick we're McHenry. calling him. Or, I don't know yeah, what his pro title tem is. or something. And uh, then coming out a few hours later saying, no, never mind. Maybe I can convince some people. Um, I, I think what's interesting here in California is that essentially all of the Republican members who are in purple districts, swing districts, where they know they will have tough elections against Democrats, voted to support Jim Jordan. I think it's important to note that this is not just, I mean, Kevin McCarthy is associated with Trump, but Jim Jordan asked Trump for a pardon because, according to a lot of reporting, because he thought he might have flouted the law over the January 6th stop the steal whole thing. Absolutely. I mean, he is part of the chaos caucus in the Republican Party in the House right now. And, you know, there's I'm sure at least some of them are quite happy to see the House grind to a halt. They're not big on government generally. Uh, and although it's not a good look for the reasons you just stated in terms of bad politics when you're running for re-election to, to be part of a party that seems to be dysfunctional and unable to govern. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, people 
people have voters have a way of kind of forgetting certain well, things. It's a long road from it's here a long to next way. Summer. Yes, I although not so though, long to March. Yeah, and I do think though that this is it really does whatever you think about if voters will remember or care about Jim Jordan if he lives or dies in this speakership fight. I think it does play into the narrative that Democrats have leaned into about Republicans as a party of chaos, of extremism, of sort of kowtowing to former President Trump. And you know, I'm not saying that someone like Orange County Congresswoman Michelle Steele isn't still an excellent candidate for her district, but there's already billboards going up there tying her to Trump and Jordan. And I do think that it is a little and someone like David Valadeo, who voted to impeach Trump and is now voting for Jim Jordan, yeah. who helped with that attempt to overthrow the government. Yeah, right? And it's all these are all self-inflicted wounds. You know, this is not like somebody imposed this on them, although I suppose they would say the Democrats did by not voting to support McCarthy. But, you know, in the end, as she has said, it's their speaker. They have to elect the speaker. No one ever, no Republicans ever helped her become speaker. Um, and, but it will be interesting, Marisa, I think, to see just how far will Democrats stay on the sidelines here and allow mm-hmm. this chaos to develop. There are some big issues coming up, including the funding of the government, uh, which that uh, is going to be in front of them by November. Um, and we'll see if Hakeem Jeffries... Well, uh, not to mention aid to Israel and Ukraine. And Ukraine, exactly. And All those I mean. Things. You know, with a war going on, I do think I mean, you even see in just the tenor of Jordan's comments, uh, it's a lot easier to stand on the outside and throw bombs. Yes, exactly. And I think that's, uh, you know, is it really I think they have to decide are they going to be a governing party or an outside throwing rocks party? All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll return to our recent conversation with former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are about to bring you more of our conversation with former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This is from our sit down with her earlier this month at KQED Live. And if you missed uh, part one last week, make sure to subscribe to the Political Breakdown podcast. Last year, as you may recall, Pelosi's husband, Paul, was attacked at their home by an assailant who was looking for the former House Speaker. We asked Nancy Pelosi how he's doing. Thank you for asking. Paul is making rapid progress, probably about 80% back, but and he's doing what he needs to do in terms of therapy and the rest. But it'll take a few more months, and hopefully by Christmas or New Year, he'll be okay. Thank you, though, for asking. Yeah. Everybody asks about him all over the world. We get so much, uh, 
so many prayers and so many uh, thoughts and, and goodwill uh, for him. And you know what? It's so funny because he's not even political. <laughs> he's not even political. And that person came looking for me, and Paul paid the price. It's such a sweet person. But Christina and Nancy Corinne are here. They, um, we take great pride in him and take good care of him. You, when, when this horrible incident happened, you were asked uh, on CNN, I think it was, like, wh is this going to affect your decision to run for re-election? You said, yes, it definitely will. And I think our initial take was, oh, she's not going to run. And obviously you're running. And I'm wondering, did it have that impact on you? I was saying, I'm not going to let this guy determine whether or not I run for re-election. Well, it, it, um, a lot of it would depend on how well Paul was uh, improving, that's for sure. But uh, here's the thing, for 20, for more than 30, 35 years I've been in Congress, but for 20 of those years, I was speaker or leader, eight years speaker, which meant that everything that was happening in the Capitol and the House of Representatives, I had major responsibility for, and as leader in, in the Democratic Party. When that came, was coming to an end, the city of San Francisco had given me so much latitude to do that, to, to take that responsibility, not to the neglect of my city, but nonetheless an additional responsibility. In my service in Congress, I visited 87 countries, sometimes once, sometimes five times, sometimes closer to double digit if it were a theater of war like Afghanistan or, or uh, Iraq. But for me, when I saw that San Francisco had certain needs right now and what I could do about that in the Congress, I thought, they've given me all this latitude. I'm not walking away when the glory days in terms of speakership are over. I'm here, as I always have been, for the people of San Francisco. So it was more about San Francisco. It was... It was also about the fact that our democracy is at stake. And that, to me, is, was what we do. We take the oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, which is at risk, is at risk in what we see among some people. One of them, you know what I mean. Uh, and that was part of my, it was about San Francisco, and it was about our democracy and what it means to individuals in terms of their freedom, what it means to our country, and what it means to the world that America's democracy is the strong model to the world of democracy. Um, will you commit, there will be an election, your election, and a lot of those questions will be settled when you're, uh, when you're up for re-election. Will you commit to serving two full years? What do you mean two full years? Like another, full full another full term yeah. in the House. Yeah, that's what my plan is to do, of course. I do want to ask, it's thought that your daughter, Christine Pelosi, who's here, might want to run for your seat um, in the future. What would, would you want her to do that? What We've never had that? that conversation. Shall we have it here? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, we'd love to. So you're telling me that there's somebody who wants my job. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know public service is a huge sacrifice. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious. It is. It is. And that's why I respect my colleagues on the other side, have respected my colleagues on the other side of the aisle and the people who send them 
to the Congress. It, public service is service, uh, and it is um, a blessing if you have the privilege to be engaged in it. And I always say to people, because I get asked all the time, but young women want to be involved, and I say, here's what I say to them. I say, know your why. Know why you want to do this. Mm. Is it about children for me? My why was about children. One in five children in America went to sleep hungry at night. One in five children in America lived in poverty and went to sleep hungry at night. That's got me out of the kitchen to the Congress. Housewife, house speaker. The children were the children. And that's your why. So know what you're talking about. Get the job. Figure out how you can strategically attract people to your point of view. Care. Show what's in your heart. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. In the history of the world, there's never been anyone like you. So know your power. Know the difference that you can make. And know your why, because this is hard. It comes at you tough, you know, it's, uh, I don't care. But nonetheless, other people do. They don't all, you know. Um, <laughs> they say you get in a ring. You know, the beautiful Republican president, Teddy Roosevelt, he talked about being in the arena and how you're not a spectator anymore, you're a fighter. So I say to them, you're in the arena. You know your power, know your why and know that you're going to have to take a punch. And sometimes you're going to have to throw a punch for the children. <laughs> for the children. So, but my favorite, my favorite line of this is Sister Joyce down in Los Angeles. I just saw her the other day. She sent me this thing. It was a, a bishop in Africa nailed this to the wall in a hospital. And it said, one day... When I die and I happily go to meet my maker, our creator, he will say to me, show me your wounds. And if I have no wounds, he will say, was nothing worth fighting for. I'm proud of my wounds. Mm. (laughs) So after Senator Feinstein passed away, the governor had to make an appointment. There's a lot of reporting that uh, among the things that the governor had to consider was you. Oh, no. That you, well, why would I want to be a you know, senator? I've been speaker of the house. <laughs> Did you have any conversations with the governor about the appointment? No. No. None. Not one? No. no. Maybe jokingly I may have said, um, no, I don't even think joking. I don't think we ever had a conversation about it. Um, but um, I'm very proud of the governor. We're very proud that he was mayor of San Francisco. He's, he is um, knowledgeable, articulate, and out there in the fray to hold, uh, to fight for our democracy as we go in, into this, um, in this campaign. So, yeah. Nope, no, I never did have a conversation with him. That was up to him. He had a lot of appointments. A senator, Alex Padilla, wonderful an attorney general, then, well, he, no, Jerry Brown did, did um, um, the, the first appointment of, of Javier Becerra, and then he did Bonta, and then he did the Secretary of State, and then another senator. That's a lot of appointments for a 
one person for a governor, but the three he, Supreme he handled it very with excellent people all throughout. Yeah. You know, you speak in very glowing terms of President Biden, and obviously we'll yeah. be alongside him campaigning next year yeah. for the Democrats. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious, like, you talked about the economy being so important. Um, we hear a lot these days about immigration on the border. What do you think success looks like for, on some of these issues in terms of communicating some of the wins you laid out uh, to the electorate? Because it doesn't seem by the poll numbers that people are feeling some of those good, that, that good news. Yeah. And there's a lot of fear about what's happening on the southern border. Well, uh, the border, it, we have a responsibility uh, to secure our border. There's no question about that. And we want to do so in a way that honors our values. I've worked with the, with the um, evangelicals, for example, and when, what's his name, tried to do a ban on Muslims and the rest, we had a big come together, and they said, the U.S. refugee resettlement program is the crown jewel of American humanitarianism. That's the evangelicals. So we have, again, we have to, sh to uh, honor our values as we protect our border. But let me just say this. I'm not a big believer in the polls. In the last election, say around now, did you ever hear that we we're going to leave 30 or 40 seats? There was going to be a red wave. This red wave was coming. And I said, you know what? That just ain't the case. Because we had our elections. We knew. We said to people in the district, in the bit, one district at a time, your person voted against democracy, voted against gun violence protection, voted against uh, saving the environment, voted against a woman's right to choose. And they all lost. We won every seat except New York, we lost five seats in New York. We'll win those in the next election. But the poll said we were going to lose 30 to 40. We lost five. So yeah. that's, and it's that's a year that. out. So, so as far as that's concerned, I think that it, we have to improve the, we have to give people the message the way they receive it and when they're ready to receive it. And I feel very confident that the president will succeed. I didn't tell you this. Remember I told you about food out of their mouths and heating oil for seniors and all that? Would you believe that the Republicans want to take almost 80% of the funding for Title I education for the poorest children in America? They want to take almost all of it away. Why I say that is because education is part of our democracy. An informed electorate is the crown jewel of a, a, of a, of a democracy. And they want to, if you live in the suburbs and you have high tax areas where kids can go to school and have a wonderful education, God bless them for that. But why would you take 80% of the money from the poorest kids in America? It's just, it's wrong, but it's also undemocratic. So when we, again, go out there and make the case where people are ready to receive it, who give a damn about justice and fairness and liberty and justice for all, what good is it to say to a country, if you're poor, we don't want you to even have an education? Because you know what? You're depriving America of some of the best talent some of the freshest thinking that you don't even know about. Mm -hmm. Not to even mention them reaching their self-fulfillment, but for America, making America strong. So when you see how we are, you know, in the fight, throwing the punch, 
as Diane said, why do you have to be the one always making the charge? It's because of the oath we take to protect and defend the Constitution, the pledge we take for liberty and justice for all, that the flag is still there. And that's what you will see, and that's why we do this. That's why we do this, and that is what is at stake in this election. You've, um, the children. You've mentioned San Francisco a number of times. Obviously, you care deeply about your city. And San Francisco's had its moment in the barrel. You know, we're uh, constantly being attacked by Fox News. There are serious problems on the streets with fentanyl, homelessness, public safety, you know, car break-ins. Um, homelessness is at the root of a lot of that. And I'm wondering, you know, we talk about the city. What can the city do? What can the state do? But the, why isn't the federal government do, doing more? Do you feel like it's under... Republican and Democratic presidents, it seems like, for example, HUD funding has been going well, down. Well, let me just say that I don't agree to how you describe San Francisco. That's how the New York Times might describe San Francisco. Um, and yes, we have fentanyl on the street. Homelessness has been largely addressed, except if you're talking about encampments, drug use and fentanyl and the rest of that. Uh, and the um, federal government has done a lot of things under President Obama and under President Biden to recognize the beautiful diversity of communities like ours in terms of, of how the laws are written to provide as much affordable, we got low income, affordable housing, and then market rate, the most for low income and affordable housing. So a lot of what's on the street now is not necessarily about homelessness as it is related to drug use. And that's one of the things I'm working very hard on. And I think the city has done a good job, the mayor's done a good job in getting people off the street. But if they don't want to leave, then we just have to address the functional issue. This, see this thing here? This, just the base, not the flower. Well, just the flowers, not the base. Less than that of fentanyl would kill the whole city of San Francisco. This chair, 25% of the people on the earth, fentanyl. It's so deadly. And yet, chemicals from China, processed in Mexico, brought into the United States, some of it sold in San Francisco. So I've called on the federal government to do a, um, what is called a, well, it's, a, it's a, an initiative where there is violence and drug use. They can come in and help get that off the street. And that's what they are working on. And we'll be making some announcements about that. But it's a, a decision. And the community has to recognize that there has to be more law enforcement. You know, we want everybody's rights protected and the rest, but there has to be more law enforcement because this is deadly. But San Francisco is so great. And, we're, you know, we're resilient. We're resilient. We are a great place. We have great values. The Song of St. Francis, our anthem, make me an instrument of thy peace. Such greatness, beautiful diversity of people, of opinion, of religion, of politics, just different from each other, but respectful of everyone. So I couldn't be prouder than to uh, speak for the people of San Francisco on the floor of the house. We are short on time, um, but we did learn last month that you are a deadhead. 
Oh, yeah. It's quite a pivot. And <laughs> I know, but we had to get this question in. So what's your usual concert attire? We usually see you dressed for the House of Representatives and events like this. Yeah. And what's your favorite song? Well, here's the thing. I love the Grateful Dead. And I, they had this article that I love the Grateful Dead, which I do and have for years. And they've done a lot of political things for us and this or that. And um, and this last... The last concert. Final. <laughs> the final, final, final. Final of the Grateful Dead was, was there. And then I went to say hi to them during intermission. And they said, no, you have to stay on stage for it. So, so they were there and I was right here just... It was fabulous. It was great. And then they gave me something, vote. Now, you go out there and hold this sign that says vote. I said, no, I'm not going out there and hide that sign. <laughs> we want people to vote. We don't want them to take it out on a politician who shows up at a rock and roll concert. <laughs> I love them. I love you too. You too. They just did a beautiful thing about Israel. Uh, I love um, so many. Uh, the one that I regret that I never saw I've seen almost everybody. The one that I never saw was Queen. Mm. Now, Are you in heels yeah. at the concert? I think I had boots. It was a little chilly that night. <laughs> a little chilly that night. I don't even remember what I, I had. I have to ask because you're famous for the heels, you know. Yeah, yeah, usually I do. But uh, I don't remember what I had that night because it was cold. In fact, I said to Bobby Weir, you've got to put on... Um, Bob Weir. Socks. Bobby hmm? Weir. Bobby Weir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you've got to put on socks. It's cold. He said, no, I'm not putting on socks. <laughs> How do you know them so well? Oh, they, when I became whip, which was the big moment, you know, in other words, who became whip was going to do the, and um, they came and did a show for me in Washington, D.C. It was quite remarkable. Nobody ever saw anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Speaker Emerita, Nancy Pelosi, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. That is, that's a wrap for tonight's edition of Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. We want to say thanks to our KQED Live crew, including Executive Director Ryan Davis and Producer Lance Gardner. Our radio engineer is Jim Bennett, and I'm Marisa Lagos. Thanks for coming tonight. And I'm Scott And Churchill. let's thanks thank so much. Scott oh. and uh, Marisa for their wonderful questioning and orchestrating all of this tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank all of you. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too. 
at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.